Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger winds, his ministers of flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. Have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with the good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, family of God. As we prepare to study Psalm 104... I want to begin by doing a little poll. I need a little community participation. Are you ready to participate? Yes, sir. I want to ask you about some experiences which I have had and see if anybody else in the room has had this experience. First one. Did anybody in the last week step outside and feel the warm sun and think it is good? Anybody think it's good to be alive? There's hope. For the world, spring is here. Okay, got some good response for that one. Second question. Go back in time a couple of weeks ago. Very different, you remember that? Anybody open your door, step outside, feel the harsh wind, wind chill negative 20 degrees. See big icicles coming down from the roof of your 
house or apartment or wherever you live. See all the ground blanketed in snow to where you can't tell where your yard ends and the curb and the street begin. Snow drifts up to a foot or two feet in places. And think, at the same time, this is scary and dangerous and this is beautiful and awesome. Anybody have that experience? Okay, here's another one. Anybody got a pet? A few yeses, a few noes. Anybody ever looked at that little creature and thought, I'm glad this thing is alive? Anybody ever done that? And just felt, what, you wonder what it would be like. We got one little dog that Abigail prayed into our family. We were not going to get a dog. We got several people allergic to dogs. We got a lot of children already keeping us busy. We're not going to get a dog. But Abigail was praying, praying, praying for a puppy. And she showed up at our front porch and would not leave and wore us down with those big brown eyes. But now she's lived with us for several years. And when I look at her, sometimes I think, it's good that she's alive. Anybody ever done, done that with your pet? Here's another one. You ever sat outside and you looked at birds flying around? There was a lot of robins last week. I don't know if you saw them swarming. Or looked at hummingbirds or seen the squirrels playing. My backyard, it's amazing. We're in the middle of the city and yet bunny rabbits, all sorts of stuff will come through there. I've opened the door and there's been a possum at the door at my house before. And you see all these creatures and you just feel amazed that the world is just teeming with life. Anybody ever done that? Here's another one. Anybody ever looked up at the sky? And you were just... Chauncey has looked at the sky. (laughs) That's good, brother. Anybody looked at the sky and you were just amazed at how big and majestic it is? And you felt small, but in a good way. Particularly the night sky with all the stars. Anybody done that? If you haven't done that lately, we got help from one of our church family, Zach Padgett, because he has the, uh, he has a hobby of astrophotography. It's a thing. I looked it up on Wikipedia. He did not make up that word. It's where you take pictures of the sky. And he shared one with me, which I asked if I could share with you. So can we see if we can get it on the screen, guys? Yeah, Zach took that picture. Isn't that cool? He sent me a description of what it was, and it had a link to a NASA thing. We're looking at the heart of the heart nebula. And tell me if this is right, Zach. The little orange part in the middle, not the whole picture, just the little orange part in the middle, is 15 light years across. Light years. So, travel the speed of light. It's really, really fast. You can't do that. But if you did, it would take you a whole year to go a light year. That's why it's called a light year. Fifteen light years across just that middle part. Photograph from your backyard? Is that where you took it? If you want more information, go talk to Zach. I didn't understand half the stuff he was saying. But he can tell you about how he took that picture. He's got a lot of them. Sometimes you just look at something like that and you think, it's big. And it's, it can be cooler because you think for all the millennia of human history up until the last few decades, we never could have seen any of that. But it was there just because God liked it. Right? Most of the universe will never be able to see, but it's there because God likes it. And he made, a, he made scientists, he made us with the capacity, scientists and creative people that now, Zach could take the picture and share it with us. How amazing. Our psalm, Psalm 104, is here... For several reasons. One of them is to help us have more experiences like the ones we've been describing. To sensitize us to the reality that creation is awesome. That the world is amazing. But more than that, Psalm 104 is here to tell us the meaning of those experiences. And the meaning of those experiences is summed up in verse 24. You want to look with me at the verse? Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The meaning of all those experiences I just described is that God is awesome. God is wise. God is powerful. God is creative. God is beautiful. But more than that, the psalm is not just here to help us have those experiences and to tell us the meaning of those experiences. The psalm is also here to change us to be a new kind of people who see and experience the world 
in a new kind of way so that when we glimpse the majesty of God reflected and refracted in his creation, we become worshipers of the living God. Say it a different way. The psalm is here to invite us to contemplate the beauty and power and majesty and order of creation in a way that is designed to move us to worship God, the creator, and to transform us to become the kind of worshipers who reflect his glory and goodness and creativity. Now, becoming a worshiper is the same thing as becoming joyful. Those are not two different things. A worshiper of God is someone who has learned to appreciate and to enjoy the goodness and greatness of God. And to become a worshiper, which is to say to become happy, to become joyful, to become the human being you were made to be, requires a little effort, requires a little work. It also, it's not going to happen apart from the grace of God. Aren't you glad that God is gracious? The only way we can become worshipers is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on the cross for our sins. And rose again and sent the Holy Spirit to change us. But the grace of God is here to empower us to do the work of becoming a new kind of people. And the psalm is here to to help us do that work. As a matter of fact, I want to draw your attention to verse 1 and point out to you something in this psalm, which we pointed out a couple weeks ago when we were studying Psalm 43, is that this psalm teaches us to talk to ourselves. Look at the beginning of this psalm. The psalm begins with these words. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Everybody say, O my soul. And if you look at the end of the psalm again, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. That verse is a little strange way to end. We can talk about that in a minute. But listen to what it says now. Bless the Lord, O my soul. There it is again. Everybody say, O my soul. Now that phrase, O my soul, is important. It shows up about 11 times exactly in the psalms. And... When you say, oh, my soul, your, your soul is yourself. It's the innermost part of you, the integrating center of your life. So this is a way of talking to ourselves. And I encourage you to look up that phrase and go study all the things that the psalmist teaches to say to ourselves. They teach us to say to ourselves, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. Return, oh, my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. The psalmist teaches us to talk to ourselves. What does that mean, though? I want you to think about it. What does it mean to talk to yourself? One of the things that, one of the ways you could paraphrase this idea is just say, it means that we're supposed to take responsibility for the patterns of thought that go on in our heads. Somebody needs to hear this. A lot of us are feeling less empowered than we really are to affect our thought life. You can change the patterns of thought in your head. Okay? And the Bible says a lot about that. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about being transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can learn how to become true spiritual worshipers. Paul tells the Corinthians to take every thought captive to Christ. In Philippians 4.8, several months ago, we studied, told us to set our minds on whatever is true and noble and right and good. Colossians 2 tells us to set our minds on things above. We're talking about taking responsibility to your thought life. Now, there's some of us in here that have some negative thoughts going on in our heads all the time. As a matter of fact, most of us in here have those thoughts a lot of the time. I don't want you to feel guilty. Actually, what I want you to do is feel empowered by God's grace. You can do something about it. Not only that, but some of us feel frustrated because our hearts and our emotions, we feel like are not aligned with where they ought to be as followers of Jesus. Kent was praying just a second ago. God, make us more like Jesus. Make us more like Jesus. Anybody want to be more like Jesus? Jesus, we find him spontaneously worshiping his father. We find him spontaneously responding with compassion to people. There's joy and love and mercy and justice in him. And sometimes our hearts just don't work like that. Have you noticed? And some of you think, I want to worship God, but my heart is cold and hard and I don't feel anything. I feel afraid when I should feel faith. I feel insensitive or angry when I should feel compassionate and gracious and humble and I want to tell you a phrase years ago. I was trying to study the concept of an attitude and I got a sermon from Discipleship Library. Shout out to 
Max Barnett and John Kelsey and everybody who did discipleshiplibrary.org, .org, I think, dot something. And I got a message on attitude and downloaded it, and there was a little sentence that stuck with me, the definition. An attitude is an emotional response to a habitual pattern of thinking. Some of you need to write that down and think about that. An attitude is an emotional response to a habitual pattern of thinking. Listen, friends, sometimes we can't affect our emotions for different reasons. We've got all sorts of emotions, and some of them are negative, and some of them are positive, and they're just there. And sometimes we... Listen, if I had a switch to flip that said, be joyful and kind and, and empathetic all the time, I would flip that switch, wouldn't you? But th- that switch doesn't exist. But what we can start working on is our thoughts and our actions. Amen? Now, when it says, oh, my soul, this is a way of saying to myself, listen, I've got some other thoughts going on in myself, in my head, but I'm telling myself, here's what you need to think about. And I'm turning my mind back to the truth. And if you try to do this, you're going to find you turn your mind back to the truth and it starts to drift again. At that moment, we got to talk about what should you do? Should you, A, beat yourself up? What do you think? No. Should you feel condemned and like Jesus doesn't love you? No. Should you remember that Jesus loves you and turn your mind back to the truth? Very good. You passed the quiz. Don't waste time feeling bad. Jesus loves you. He loves you and he's here to help. Just turn your mind back to the truth and ask for his help. And what he's saying here at the beginning and at the end of this psalm is, myself, it's so easy for you to stop worshiping God. Myself, it's so easy to get in a complaining, negative frame of mind. It's so easy to be bitter rather than thankful. It's so easy to get in the wrong place, but soul, bless the Lord. Come back to God. Worship God. This takes some effort. It takes some discipline, which is why the psalm talks about the importance of meditation. Look at verse 34. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Everybody say meditation. Meditation in scripture just means thinking deeply about God's truth. Don't move on too quickly. Slow down to chew on it, to digest it. Swallow God's word. Keep eating it. Keep chewing on it, swallowing it until it becomes a part of your life. Slow down. Think about God's truth. Do that work. And meditation is a prerequisite then to having a heart that is formed to worship God. So the psalm is here to help us. The psalmist talks to himself, but he doesn't stop there. He talks to himself and then he starts talking to God. Who knows that you can start doing the right thing even if you don't feel like it? Okay, sometimes you don't feel like worshiping God. You just got to talk to yourself and then start talking to God. And that's what he does right here. Right after he says in verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul. He then says, oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. Aren't you glad that's true, whether you feel like it or not? Everybody say God is great. He is great, and there's evidence of His greatness all over the world, whether we feel like it or not. And if we don't feel like it, we can talk to ourselves, we can meditate on God's truth, we can bring our thought patterns back to the truth of God and chew on it, and then we can begin to respond by talking to God, which is what He does in this psalm. And as He goes, the psalmist is getting filled up with joy. It's working. His heart begins to overflow. And as the psalmist is filling up with joy... What's really happening is that he's entering into God's joy and inviting us to do the same. Look with me at a really cool verse. Verse 31 says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. It's talking here about creation as the glory of God. All of creation shows us the goodness of God. And then it says, after that, may the Lord rejoice in his works. Now, when it says, may the Lord rejoice in its works, listen, God is going to rejoice in his works, whether we say that or not. Right. So it's not like saying, I hope God rejoices in his works or I'm praying, God, would you please rejoice in your works? Really, what it's doing is just the speaker is aligning his heart with God's truth, with God's reality. And he's saying it is good that God's glory is going to last forever. And it is good that God rejoices in his work. One of the things that becomes clear in this psalm is that God likes all of his creation. He enjoys it. He's happy about it. Another way to put it is this. God has thrown a big festival. God has thrown a big party. And the name of that party is creation. It's all reality. It's all cosmic history. God is 
putting on display his own goodness and inviting us to enter with him into the joy of seeing the reflection of his goodness and greatness everywhere around us. So the psalm is an invitation to be transformed, to become a worshiper, which is to say an invitation to enter into the endless joy of God. See, the truth is we need to learn how to see the world in a new way. We need to train our minds and our hearts how to relate to reality rightly. Most of us tend to relate to the world in an egocentric way, which means self-centered way. We're born that way. Anybody who's had kids can testify. You don't remember when you were a baby, but then you have a baby, then you get to see. When they come out, they're thinking, me, 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 right? And then a couple years pass, and they're still thinking, me, 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 me. But now they have more powerful tools to enforce that, right? And that's okay. That's part of their development. They're supposed to be like that at first. And hopefully, as we mature as people, one of the things that happens is we don't just see people for what they can give to me. We also begin to see them as... Having value in themselves. Don't you want to be like that? People that stay totally self-centered and egocentric their whole life, those aren't fun people to be around. Those are not mature, healthy people. Scripture is here to help us trade our egocentric, self-centered view of reality for a theocentric, God-centered view of reality. Which means when we look at everything in the world, instead of thinking first, how does it relate to me? We learn to think, how does it relate to God? How does it reflect God's goodness? And this psalm is, is filled with that in a lot of ways, specifically helping us to look out at the realm of nature and see nature in a new way so that we do walk out there in that warm sunshine and think, mm, it is good. And we look at that snowstorm and think, it's a little scary, but also it's majestic. And all those experiences that we listed earlier, we look at the night sky and we think it's glorious, but we don't stop there. Then we go on to say with Gerard Manley Hopkins, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. All of this beauty and majesty that I'm seeing is a reflection of God. Let me show you a few places where it's very clear that the psalm is trying to teach us to view nature in this theocentric way. First of all, look at the metaphors right at the beginning of the text. Starting at the end of verse 1. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. His ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be moved. Now that was a a bunch of metaphors. The psalmist compares nature to God's clothes, to God's tent, to a big house, to God's chariot. Bunch of different metaphors. Let's just talk about one of them for a second. Right there in verse 2, it says that light is like God's clothes. Do you see it? Covering yourself with light as with a garment. Think about that metaphor for a second. God is invisible. We can't see God. But God wants us to know His goodness and His greatness. God wants a relationship with us. God wants you to enjoy Him now and forever. And so God puts on clothes. That's the picture here. The clothes are letting us see something of the shape of God's goodness and greatness. And what does he say here is like God's clothes? He says light. Light. All light. You ever looked at the sun and it's beautiful, but then you can't see anything because you were blinded by it? You ever walked into a dark room and there's candlelight and something about it stirred a sense of mystery and awe for you? Psalmist says that's God's clothes. The other morning I stood up and I don't know what it was, something about the angle of the sunrise coming between the clouds, but everything in the little field behind my house was lit up with this particularly vibrant light. Psalmist is saying that's God's clothes. As a matter of fact, if you see anything, you're seeing light. Not just when you look at a candle or sunlight. The reason you can see color is because light is reflected and hits your eyeball and your brain does something or other and boom, color. There you go. So... Uh, You can look up Wikipedia if you want a better explanation of how that works. But if you see anything, you're seeing light. And what it's saying is every time you see anything, what you're seeing is God's clothes. All of nature, all of reality is revealing to you the shape of God's goodness and greatness. Now, the rest of the metaphors here, we don't have time to unpack them all. But if you take them together, here's what they're teaching us. 
Nature is not God. That's important. Okay. Nature is God's clothes. God's tent. God's chariot. Nature is not God. God is not the cactus. The sun is not God. But God is in nature. God is in all things. And he's in them as their source, as their cause, as their end, as the, the animating force that gives life and motion to the whole world. So that wherever we go, wherever we look, we're seeing the display and the radiance of God's greatness and goodness. The psalm is trying to teach us a theocentric vision of reality. Everybody say, God is the center. One of the other places where we get to decenter ourselves and start to see nature in a theocentric way is one of my favorite verses in this psalm. Skipping down a little bit to verse 26. I like this one. Talking, we're talking about the ocean at this point. It says, there go the ships and Leviathan. This is cool. Everybody say Leviathan. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Or in the ESV, there's a little text note that says, or you formed to play with. So it's either saying Leviathan, God formed to play in the sea, or God formed Leviathan to play with Leviathan. Well, what does that mean? What is Leviathan? In the ancient Near Eastern cultural context that the Bible, the Old Testament was written in, Leviathan was a word for a chaos monster that arose from the sea and threatened human life. Okay, sometimes Leviathan was depicted with seven heads consuming villagers and eating up everything. The Bible talks about Leviathan several times as a symbolic way of talking about the human experience of certain big old creatures. It could be a whale or a giant alligator or a hippopotamus or whatever. But if you're living in this ancient Near Eastern context, if you're a nomadic people, this is threatening. When you see this thing, you don't think that's cool. You run away and hide because it could kill you. And they did kill a lot of people and it was scary. Okay, so when they think Leviathan, they're thinking, uh oh, they're thinking chaos monster. They're thinking danger. But this psalm decenters us and says, listen, that's not what Leviathan is about, because Leviathan was never about you. Why is Leviathan there? Because God is playful. Why is Leviathan there? Because God enjoys Leviathan. The great Jewish scholar, John Levinson, he teaches at Harvard, and he famously said, Leviathan is God's rubber ducky. That's why he's there. What, what does that mean? It means... Who knows how many creatures somebody in here, maybe you'll grow up to be a marine biologist and you'll go study and discover there's thousands of creatures in the ocean depth that we've never seen or dreamed of. Who knows what creatures we may find in the vast stretches of the skies. But if we don't notice them, that doesn't mean they don't matter. They matter to God and God likes them. And there may be aspects of creation that don't make sense to us. They even feel threatening to us, but they don't threaten God. It's teaching us to have a theocentric view of reality. We're not the center. Everybody say God is the center. And when you begin to see reality with God at the center, you begin to see that all of reality is reflecting and displaying the beauty and power and majesty of God. And as you meditate on that, your heart starts to do what this psalmist's heart did, which is to sing, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Let's take a few minutes now and just meditate on some of the things that this psalm tells us about creation. Most of the psalm, the heart of the psalm, is just looking at different aspects of God's world and making little observations. We don't have time to talk about everything that's in there. There's a lot in there, but I just want to make a few observations, okay? First, here's one observation. Both the big, overwhelming, sublime, maybe scary aspects of creation and the little... Small, fragile, beautiful aspects of creation. Both of those reveal to us the greatness and goodness of God. The big, powerful aspects of creation like Leviathan that may be threatening to us do not threaten God. But they offer us glimpses of his majesty. This is displayed throughout the psalm, but look at verses 5 through 9. It says, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. He covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. This is referring to Genesis 1 verse 2, which it talks about primordial creation being covered with the waters, another symbol of chaos. And the point here is that creation in its raw, untended, uncultivated form is powerful in a way that's chaotic and threatening 
for human beings, but it's not threatening for God. What it can reveal to us is the majesty and power of God. And it goes on to describe how God shapes that. It says those waters, which verse verse uh, six, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood up above the mountains. That's talking about big waves. OK, big waves. At your rebuke, though, God, they fled at the sound of your thunder. They took to flight. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place that you appointed them. You set a boundary for them that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. What is it being said here? Saying saying there's massive forces in nature, including big storms out at sea with mountainous waves. And if you're a human being and you get caught in a boat or you live near the coast, that's terrifying. That's maybe deadly, but not for God. He subdues them. It's not hard for them. He sets their boundary. He's stronger than the powerful forces of nature that threaten us. But not only that, he's able to transform them into something that gives life to vulnerable, fragile little creatures. Look, look what the text says next. Just keep reading. You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. So just the last few verses, the waters were big, powerful, not threatening to God, but definitely threatening to us. But God has subdued them. He set boundaries for them. And now he's making them gush up in little streams that don't destroy our lives. As a matter of fact, they do the opposite. Look how the verse continues. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. The big, majestic, sublime aspects of creation reveal God's power. Yet he's able to subdue those powerful forces of nature, and transform them and make them something that gives life to small, fragile creatures. So when you see the waterfall, you think God is powerful. But when you see that little flower, you think God cares enough to nurture the smallest and most fragile life. I I like this little phrase that says, you water the mountains. Now, if you grew up in Colorado Springs, that would give you one picture in your mind. I do not live there. I did not grow up there. So I had a different picture in my mind. I'm, I'm from Oklahoma now. I mean, I, I'm a transplant from Texas, but I'm here now, friends. So y'all know what I saw. When I hear you water the mountains, there's only one place I could possibly think of. Where did I think? Mount Scott. We only got one mountain, right, in the state. So I, I pictured Mount Scott. And a few months ago, we drove our kids and drove up to the top of Mount Scott and had fun jumping around all the boulders up there. And the top of the mountain is a big pile of a whole bunch of boulders but it is kind of amazing you can walk around and everything's just rock the mountains made out of rock and there's a bunch of piles of big rocks everywhere and yet you can go to a place there's rock 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 and then you'll find this little place where there's a little spot of dirt and grass or these beautiful flowers will just grow up in it it's like you got this much dirt how did a seed get there it's surrounded by rock yeah i thought i read this verse and i thought of that and i thought god cares about that fragile little life He nurtured that little flower. It only needed this much dirt, but he sent it right there in the right water. So that thing could bloom, be there for a few minutes. He would enjoy it even if I didn't see it, but he let me see it because he also loves me. The earth is full of that kind of thing. Jesus liked to draw the, the attention of his disciples to that stuff. And he would say things like this, Luke 12, 28. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. God is big. He's powerful. He's not threatened by the things that threaten us. But he, he's attentive to the small and the vulnerable. And he nurtures vulnerable life and protects it. Here's another observation from Psalm 104. God really cares about human beings and wants us to be happy and has provided a lot of resources for us to be happy. And he wants us to enjoy them. Isn't that good news? Look with me at verses 14 and 15. You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Anybody like to eat? God could have made it where it just hurts to get hungry, 
but steak doesn't taste like it does. Cheesecake doesn't taste as good as cheesecake tastes. He made the food, and he gave us the taste buds, and he made it awesome. Aren't you glad? Thanks be to God. But then it goes on to say this, and wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God has filled the world with all sorts of natural resources to make human beings happy. This is starting to sound like Ecclesiastes. Remember all those verses in Ecclesiastes that says, Listen, God is a good creator and God loves you. Enjoy food. Enjoy every sunset. Enjoy friendships. Enjoy good drink. Enjoy all the good gifts that God has given you. Enjoy them. Christians sometimes misunderstand this and we start thinking, Listen, God only cares about eternal things. We should only care about eternal things. And we start feeling guilty for enjoying all the little things that we want to enjoy. But that is wrong, friends. That is wrong. What that does is only give God credit for a small slice of reality and of the goodness in reality. What the Bible teaches is that all of the goodness of reality comes from God. And he wants us to enjoy all of it for his glory. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, there's an interesting passage. You might flip over to it. Paul, the apostle, was warning about false teachers. And they're teaching what he calls demonic doctrines. Does that sound good to you? No, you don't want to teach demonic doctrines. But as it turns out, the demonic doctrines that these teachers were teaching was that they were forbidding marriage and they were forbidding certain kinds of food. And they were saying, listen, God only cares about the eternal spiritual stuff, not about all that stuff. And listen to how Paul responds. First Timothy four, verse three, he says, these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Did you hear that? Everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. All of it. Were you created by God? Okay, then say, I am good. Look, I know you're a sinner here. I'm not getting my theology twisted. We'll come to that in a second. But you're good. That's the first truth you need to know. What about all the other people in the room? Were they created by God? Sunshine, food, friendship astrophotography and all the stuff that it takes pictures of. Is all that created by God? Then is it good? Everybody say it's good. Paul says everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What does that mean? It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I remember reading that as a teenager and thinking if I'm going to eat my food in a holy way, I got to like read a scripture over it or something. I got to make it holy by the word of God and prayer. Got to do it, put a Bible verse on it, right? That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is when, when scripture, scriptures like Psalm 104 have become our meditation so that our heart has been transformed and we become a prayerful people, a worshipful people, all of life becomes an invitation to worship. All of life can become sacred. Every pleasure becomes an occasion to say, thanks be to God, glory to God. And every sacrifice becomes an occasion to say, God is still enough for me. All of life becomes a sacred invitation to worship the Lord. God has created all sorts of things for human beings because he cares about us and wants to be happy. The psalm also teaches, though, that God cares for all kinds of creatures besides human beings. He likes all the animals. He likes all kinds of stuff besides us. Look, Look at verse 16 and following. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. And then the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor Until the evening. Wow, God cares about all kinds of stuff. Rock badgers. I don't even know what a rock badger is. But God cares for rock badgers. He takes care of them. I want you to notice the stuff. Look at that little part where he says, At night, all the nocturnal creatures come out. And the lions, in particular, start roaming around to get their food from who? To get it from God. This is a lot like the Leviathan verse. Listen, most of us, if we've seen a lion up close, we saw it at the zoo, right? But we also live in cities. To where it's hard to see the stars because there's light everywhere, right? There's street lights. So most of us spend very little time outdoors where it's really, really dark. 
But imagine, go, go back in your mind, you're living in this ancient Near Eastern context, your house is a tent, it's a long time before Thomas Edison is going to come around when there's no electric lights. If you need to go outside of the tent at night to use the restroom, guess what? That is scary. And do you know what makes it a lot scarier? If you hear a lion growl. That will get your heart rate up, right? Um, that's scary. But what, what this text is saying is God takes care of human beings. He gives you bread for food, wine to make your heart glad, oil to make your face shine. But then he says, and all that night stuff that's scary to you and feels uncertain to you, why is it there? Well, there's all sorts of things that God loves that come out at night. God loves to feed the raccoons. God loves to feed the lions. If they're in the same place, God loves to feed the raccoons to the lions, right? He's taking care of, but he's taking care of all of his creatures. He delights in them all. We could keep going. I'm running out of time. But let me move to a couple of serious points towards the end of this psalm. So far, this is making us feel happy and good. But then there's a couple moments that might strike us a little different. First, the psalm teaches as we look around. I just mentioned that little thing about the lion eating the raccoon. Um, and I said it in jest, but then maybe we need to stop and think about it. Because part of what the text is saying is God is sovereign over life and death for all of creation. Look at verses 27 through 30. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open their hand, they are filled with good things. Beautiful picture. The reason anything is alive on the planet is because God opened his hand to feed it and give it life. But then it says, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And then it says again, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. God is the God of life. He's sovereign over death. And he's the God of new life, new creation, recreation. If we know Jesus, this starts to awaken the word resurrection in our minds. But first, it's the first real signal in this text that creation is not entirely as it ought to be. And that becomes even more clear when you go to verse 35. I told you we we're going to come back to this. It's a beautiful psalm, a beautiful nature poem. And then all of a sudden at the end of it, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Did anybody else find that jarring? Where did that come from? Towards the end of the psalm, we become alerted that there is death in the world and that there is evil in the world. The world is not as it ought to be. We've been celebrating that God is good and because God is good, all of God's creation is good. He wants us to enjoy His good creation and to give Him glory for it. But now we hear there's death in the world, there's evil in the world. What is evil? We could talk a long time about that, but let's just say for now, evil is the enemy of God and of God's good creation. Evil is what happens when free creatures, human beings or angels, turn away from loving God and rebel against Him. And that evil force is the enemy of God, it's the enemy of God's good creation. As such, it's the enemy of humanity. Evil and sin are the enemy of human life. They're the enemy of human joy. Sin, evil, is the anti-creation force in the world. Which means the invitation to repent is an invitation to turn from death to life. It's an invitation to turn from annihilation to being, from misery to joy. I want you to understand that when the Bible says things that disturb us about God's judgment, God's judgment is not something arbitrary, like God's mad at us for not liking uh, him, so he sends us to our room. Okay, God is goodness itself, joy itself, life itself. If you get God, you get goodness, joy, life, and all the good gifts of creation. Sin is turning away from God, but to turn away from God is to turn away from life. It's to turn away from joy. It's to turn towards nothing. Judgment is the fruition of sin. It's not something arbitrarily added to sin. If you keep walking away from God, you're walking away from life. You're walking away from joy. 
You're walking away from hope. You're walking away from being. You're walking towards nothingness, towards destruction. And some of us can testify. Not only have we experienced God's goodness, but have you found that if you get in a sin pattern, it will mess up your life? And it will mess up the world? So this end of the psalm is awakening in us a sense that though the world is beautiful and good, it is not as it ought to be. And we long for more. We need a, something to save us from the death and the evil in the world. And of course, like all of Scripture, this is pointing us to the main thing. And what's his name? Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. Creation is all about Jesus, friends. John chapter 1, verse 3 says about Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says this about Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That means Jesus is the source of all creation and Jesus is the goal of all creation. And he holds all things together right now. But right now, as we look around, we see the beauty of God and we see evidence of the brokenness of sin and evil in the world, which is why Romans 8, 19 says the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is groaning, waiting to be healed and renewed. When does that happen? Well, go read the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Tell us when it happens. See, the problem is evil and sin and death. And Jesus came to solve that problem. He came the first time, the creator of all things, to renew his creation by dying on the cross for our sins, by absorbing the destructive, creation-destroying effects of evil, and then rising again, the victory of life over death, of creation over evil, and jump-starting the renewal of creation. Then he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us, and one day he's going to return and make all things new. And when that happens, what we get is new creation. Everybody say, new creation. We're waiting for him to come back and get rid of the evil, get rid of the death, and make all things new. And this leads us to the final point. We're almost done. I'm about to sit down. But I want to end today by saying, let's get practical. Some of you, your your hearts have been stirred. I hope so. If not, I'll pray the Holy Spirit will get you later. But some of anybody feel stirred to worship God today? Your hearts may be stirred, but you may be wondering, what am I supposed to do with this? I just want to give you a few practical considerations before I sit down and we take the Lord's Supper. First thing I want you to hear is there is a biblical injunction. A command has been laid upon you, and this is a good one. Enjoy God's good world with a thankful heart. Remember last week when Jared told us, some of us are wasting too much time being miserable. It's okay to be happy. Great are the works of the Lord. Enjoy God's good creation with a thankful heart. And recognize that when you do that, what you're doing is entering into the joy of God. Creation is God's festival. It's God's big party, His big celebration. And He's inviting us to join the party. As you do that, you're tapping into something here. I don't have time to unpack all this for you, friends. But if you study the history of Christian spirituality... There's three main streams, and that's contemplation of God through contemplation of nature, contemplation of God through contemplation of the human soul, and contemplation of God through direct contemplation of God through meditation on Scripture. And if we haven't awakened any of those, there's a whole lot of riches available to us. And Psalm 104 is here to help us with that first one, natural contemplation, which is to say, God wants you to learn to experience all of reality as an invitation to worship. When you see the big, beautiful things, when you've meditated on God's word this way, when when you see the big, strong, powerful things, you'll think God is majestic. When you see the small, beautiful, fragile things, you'll think God cares for fragile life. When you see the death and the evil and the brokenness, you'll think, come Lord Jesus and make all things new. And as you learn to see reality in this God-centered, theocentric way, your capacity for joy will increase. This is what we prayed a minute ago in the words of St. Augustine. Narrow is the mansion of my soul. Enlarge it that you may enter in. God, stretch my soul. 
to see the beauty of your reality. What we're saying is that sadness is the surface. The depth of reality is the joy of God. Sadness is temporary. Joy is eternal. Don't let the devil trick you into thinking that all the terrible stuff going on is the main thing. It's a distraction from the eternal festival that God has invited us to join. And when we learn to perceive that, though we still groan with creation over its current state of futility and decay, there is a hope and a joy that not only creates in us a capacity to be happy, but to join God in his care for the fragile and broken things. It creates in us a desire and a hunger for holiness because when we're fighting sin, what we're doing is fighting against the destructive force of evil that threatens God's good creation and we're fighting for the joy and peace of God's creation. It motivates us for mission because anytime we do anything that cares for people, share the gospel, share the word of God, Mentor a kid. Sweep up a floor so that somebody can step into a beautiful, clean place instead of a dirty, ugly place. Anything you do to care for God's good world is an act of worship. It's a reflector of, reflection of God's glory. As we come to the Lord's Supper now, we're remembering that the Creator is willing to go as far as it takes to heal His creation. He came all the way to the cross. And the Creator wants you to know Him and to know His joy that bad. If you're here today and you don't know this God that we're talking about, but you do know that you've sinned against Him, the invitation of the Gospel is just come believe in Jesus. He died on the cross so that you could enter into the eternal party of enjoying God and His creation. Trust Jesus today and He'll forgive you. And Christians, the Lord's Supper right now is an invitation again to remember, remember your Creator and His grace. He wants to invite you into His joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank You for this Word. Thank You for the truth and the power of the Bible. I pray that Your Holy Spirit will help us now to believe the Gospel, to believe in Your love for us, to become people who worship You freely and joyfully, and meditate on Your truth, and to share in Your compassionate care for fragile life wherever we find it. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, your son. Amen.